Nighttime on Still Waters. This is NB506812, narrowcasting into the night from somewhere on Britain's waterways. Twenty seventh of May, Friday. Two hours until sundown, and a stillness already settles. Shadows creep low and long through the sedge and long grasses on the bank. The swan stretches in her nest under an alder that shimmers with blackbird song. Later, the peace will be disturbed and the sky explode with shouts and light. But not now. Now all is still. This is the narrowboat Erica, narrowcasting into the darkness. Thank you so much for taking the time to come. The old moon, a sliver of ancient light, is below the horizon, and the night is full of blues and heavy cloud. But a kettle is freshly boiled. The biscuit tin has been restocked. The lights are low. Please come in. Make yourself comfortable. Nights should never be lonely. May is slowly making way for June. Our seasonal calendars are far from fixed. They shift according to occupation and preoccupations. Is this the end of spring and the beginning of summer? Or did summer start at the beginning of May with Beltane? Agrarian calendars differ from pastoral ones. Beltane reflects the latter. The movement of livestock from winter to summer pastures. And meteorologically, summer begins on the 1st of June. Astronomical summer begins on the 21st of June, summer solstice. And if we were to order our seasons botanically, summer flowering begins midway through May. Although for the last few years it's been a couple of weeks early. But the weather, of course, lives beyond our ordered boundaries that we try to impose. Turbulent systems determined, in the most part, by the heating and cooling of our orbit around the sun. There's been plenty of talk about April showers this week, and even jokes about the return to autumn. Although, in fairness, whilst the days have sometimes brought us jumper weather, they have been far too warm for bigger coats. And our April was extremely dry, and so, and I appreciate I'm probably in the minority here, I for one... I'm not sorry for the rain, and welcome it. I know it's no fun to stand at the tiller for hours in pouring rain, or even drizzle. It's cold, and the water seeps up the cuffs and down the neck. It can be miserable, and I feel sorry for those who have to plough on through the rain regardless. However, it does mean that the rain pools and dew ponds that are so vital to all the communities of life here have been desperately in need of being replenished, have been. And besides, there's nothing better. Mm-hmm. 
than the feel of rain on your face. And whatever the season, the hedgerows and towpaths are clothed in their summer colours. Early insects swarm and fly. And as B.B. once observed, this is the best time by the waterside before the ones that bite appear in late summer. And the skyscapes still, however, have a spring-like quality to their light. A cleanness of chalk blue that I associate with April. And sometimes there's a hint of it in September or even October, if it's soft and gentle. And cloudscapes boil and fume on days like these. And buzzards circle and mew, crows scold and hector, swallows dart, blackbirds flute, wrens jenny and voices too loud for their bodies, sparrows cheek, magpies clatter, woodpeckers yaffle, herons hance with stilted legs, and the world has come alive, and I find that I am living in the worded land of Dylan Thomas, where there is a spring full of larks in a rolling cloud, and the roadside bushes brimming with whistling blackbirds. These days, wakened from frowsty spring by sunshine and rain, are good days. And in the fields, the mature ewes have been sheared, and they look shrunk and skinny beside their rounded cloudscapes of their lambs. To me it looks like they've swapped roles, but they're not confused. The portly lambs suckle and call for their diminutive mums, as they had before their shearing. And the older ducklings are growing, and newer families emerge and then blend into the rhythm of the days. Jan saw a new hatching of moorhen chicks, but has not been able to see them since, and I've kept my eyes open, but to no avail. And it'll soon be getting near the time of molt for the ducks. This is when they go into eclipse, shedding old and damaged feathers and replacing them with new plumage. But it's an unhappy time for birds. They lose their flight feathers and are particularly vulnerable until the new plumage grows. And it's thought that they also feel a bit out of sorts. I know that when our hens used to molt, they used to look so very sad and dejected. And here, the male mallards in particular are looking careworn and scruffy. And although the eclipse is probably a couple of months still away, the drakes particularly look a bit jaded. The glossy greens have a more mottled and moth-eaten appearance. And I've also just read that the swans are too approaching their molt, and that it starts with the females first. It strikes me as being particularly unfair as they're still caring for their young. However, the males and females go into clips at different times so that while the female molts, the male, the cob, takes over the female's duties, particularly looking after and shepherding young offspring. The male swans apparently get more testy during this time and more active in protecting the female. So it seems that all of us with whom we share this planet have our own uneasy and sometimes difficult paths to navigate. There's not such a great difference between you and I, Swan, as you sit patiently awaiting your eggs to move and crack.
for we too face times when we feel eclipsed by life, vulnerable and flightless, broken-winged and stripped bare of our glory. And in those times, I will try to be as patient as you and try to believe my feathers will grow again and once again rise into the skies on powerful wings. I've had a great time this week catching up with all your news, so thank you for getting in contact with me. And a special shout-out to Ian and Deirdre Tinson, who wrote, We're in Vino, the camper van, parked by the Mourn Mountains in Northern Ireland. Heater on, rain dancing on the roof, glass in hand, listening to your podcast. Well, Ian and Deirdre, I can't think of a better way and a better place to listen in. Greetings to William McNider over in Florida. And thank you for your very kind words and for reaching out. And over on the opposite side of America, Jerry and Mary Coleman from Sebastopol in California. And they wrote to me and told me about the 15 trips that they have had on the canals in the UK over the past 30 years and how the podcasts are bringing lots of very happy and treasured memories. Um, thank you for writing in. And it's also lovely to hear from Rita He and TJ Miles. And thank you so much, Rita, for your Facebook recommendation and your really kind words. And they've been listening to the podcast while sailing the Irish waterways. And thank you for those beautiful photographs. It's stunning scenery over there, isn't it? And I'm so glad you had a good time and you've made plenty of really lovely memories and a safe journey back to Spain. Hello also to Elaine Downs in Nova Scotia and Sue Breadlady and Claire Hollingsworth and Lynn Dirk and Rosario Aquaramartin. And a special thank you and hello to Christine Burns. Thank you for such a wonderfully affirming shout out about the podcast on Twitter. It's lovely to meet you, Christine. Also you, CK Gardner. Thank you. And I'm delighted to give you a very warm welcome aboard to you both. And Lee Thomas also got back in touch with me and it was lovely to hear from her as she was telling me about her life in her cabin 8,000 feet up in the foothills of Colorado. And there's a surprising number of similarities between that type of life and life on a small boat in terms of the practicalities of day-to-day -day living. And you must tell us more, Lee. And also, thank you so much to those who have left reviews. They do make a difference. So thank you to Jeff Taylor. It's so kind of you. And also to N from America, whoever you are. It's much appreciated. I do really love hearing from you. And all the contact details are in the program notes below. And I, I want to finish this section by reading an email that I received from Tony. Uh, if you heard last week's podcast, The Colour of Water, you might remember me mentioning Tony and how about 40 or so years ago, 
we stood in a car park, neither of us can quite remember where, and it was beside a stream that ran down from some high fells. And we were trying to find words to describe the sounds that the stream made. But Tony got in touch with his thoughts on it. And if you don't mind, Tony, I want to read a section from it because you've articulated it far better than I did. I have been asking myself the very same questions about how to describe water. When sailing, I spent hours staring over the side and wondering how I could describe the depth of blue in the Mediterranean Sea when we were out in deep water. Water that I am told is about two kilometres deep, something that I find hard to conceive. The colour seemed to stay constant for days, and yet I can't describe it. And again, how do I describe the sea and bally water where I live? Ever-changing. Liquid silver doesn't come close when the sun is reflected off the ripples. And at night, when we leave the church hall after helping with the youth club, and we stare at the low moon reflected off the sea, even as Sue, that's Tony's wife, gets her phone out to photograph it yet again, I find my words fall short of the beauty. It's as if it's too real for words, too intense. As you say, less can be more with words, in the same way that you used to use black and white photography instead of colour. In a strange way, less was more. But both words and photography can be used to stimulate us in different ways, but both sometimes fall short. And as with water, I struggle to describe the smells in the air in the evening or night. The different kinds of wood or coal people burn together, with the various smell of the muck of the farmers have spread and the sweet smell of new-mown grass all in an ever-changing mix and combinations on the sometimes damp air. The craftsman can use words, or even a photograph can recreate that feeling, but while the reader may know just what is meant, sometimes you just have to be there to grasp the atmosphere, and how it mixes with the particular frame of mind you are in. I sometimes find that this can be so enveloping, even overwhelming, that I want so much to share it or bottle it in some way. And all I can do is to drink it in and try to remember. Yes, you're right, Tony. That's exactly it. There are days, usually in spring, and particularly on May washing days like this, when I can look up to the sky so heavenly blue that if I were to reach up and drag it down and were to bury my face in it, I would smell the wax crayons of God. And amidst that sailor boy blue, the proud castles of cumuli boil and bluster cauliflowering the almost spring heavens. And it's on days like these that I hear loudest the call of my childhood imagination. So real, 
I could have dreamt it only yesterday. Perhaps it's the sight of washing, billowing before the galleoning wind, and the walks that I used to have with Mum on my way to and from school, holding her hand and running to keep up with her, down the green lane that squeezed its way between the long, narrow strips of back garden terraces and allotments. A silent, no-man's land, a furtive, quiet place, from which other worlds could be spied through gaps in fences. It smelt of compost heaps, and midday lunch being cooked, and the smouldering bonfires of weeds. It was filled with the sound of dogs barking and their wet nose snuffling, and most of all, the wild, tear-filled wind played among the washing, pegged and propped like a clipper's sails. And Mum was never happier than when she had pegged out her beaten but clean army of washing on the line after a morning, steaming in the kitchen, until the condensation ran down the windows and walls like rain, and the air was sliced by the sharp smell of boiling handkerchiefs and washing powder. And I was never happier than when, tilting like Don Quixote at the ballooning sheets and bedspreads, I raced through them, feeling their coldness trickle down my face, and Mum calling me in so as not to get her washing dirty, and we had jam on our bread while the radio played. And these were the days when the invisible airwaves hummed and crackled with the disembodied voices that I knew so well. Pete Murray, Jimmy Young, Diddy David Hamilton, welcoming Wendy and me home, arriving breathless from school, Ray Moore, waking us up with the bog-eyed jog, John Dunn, my radio hero, gently talking us through our evening meal with good humour and intelligence. It was magical and normal in equal measure. I seemed to remember that the radio was always on. Not the big one in the sitting room. For much of my memory it was a large polished wooden cabinet with three large cream baker-like knobs. Its fabric speaker grill smelt of scorched dust and years and it had a large dark linear dial that lit up when it was turned on, and on which was inscribed those exotic-sounding names of radio stations far away. In one corner there was a dull's cat's eye that glowed dimly green when the valves were warmed and the speaker hissed into life. No, it was not that radio. That radio was for evenings when we sat together in the space between evening play and bedtime. This radio was a transistor that stood on the window sill of the kitchen and at other times on the table. Dulled with age, still sporting the stickers from when BBC radio frequencies changed. I also recall it was generally on radio too. And Mrs Dale's diary was a favourite of Mum's. Later it was to be replaced by Wagoner's Walk an altogether more seventies and gritty serial, set in a cul-de-sac in Hampstead in North London, a middle-class forerunner of EastEnders. 
daily 15-minute radio soap operas that were aired just as I got in from school, gulping down mum's homemade lemonade, frozen into lollies in the summer. I learnt the word inclement from Wagoner's Walk, for which I'll be forever indebted. I also perfected my French accent from it, which at the time was the same as, if not actually superior, to speaking French, because it had the advantage that I actually knew what I was saying. One of the storylines included a French au pair, and looking back I'm sure there was an attempt to introduce more racier plots and subtexts of forbidden love of all sorts. It was the seventies, after all. But all that was lost on me. I was just struck by this female French voice from a character I imagined to be just like Alexis from school who had a fringe and dimples when she smiled and a strange air of sophistication. And so I too perfected my French. Although I could only ever say one thing, I like mes oranges juice fraîche. I employed it in my everyday conversations with an enthusiasm and frequency that could only be described as laudable, and it was to be a linguistic achievement that I have subsequently struggled to equal. I recall there was also in that serial a policewoman who judo threw a jogger to the ground and then got married to him, and I'd never heard of anything as romantic as that before and he had a Welsh flatmate who was large and laughed a lot. But I'm getting sidetracked. The blowy days of April and May, the perfect washing days, when the light is just so, and the skies are chalk blue, and I can almost smell again the dog-eared carton of Ariel or Purcell, and Mum humming away to Pericomo or Valdunican and me hopping from leg to leg while I waited for Raimondo's What's the recipe today, Jim? But for some reason, what calls to me the most is a couple of pictures from a book that I have long since lost. They are of towering clouds in a powder blue sky, a washing day sky, a drying day sky. And in those clouds was a whole town, with shops and lampposts and a sun that shone yellow. It seemed to me that all the men in it were portly avuncular uncles with bald heads and wide smiles, and they wore old-fashioned Sunday suits. The type of uncles who made sixpences appear from the inside of your ear, even when you knew there were no sixpences there, because you had already checked. And the women all looked like the Queen, when she was young, and wore long dresses that swept along the red brick pavements. And there was also a friendly red dragon in the picture too. I assume he was friendly. He had big smiling eyes, and a head shaped like a Labrador, and it made me highly suspicious of St. George and the other dragon slayers. I say I assume, for, as I recall, the book had no covers. It was just a few stray pages, and so it had no story. And I think that's what captivated me by it. 
It was like me, without beginning or end. Just as I, one day, found myself alive in a world of sun and colour, noise and scent. This world within these few pictures just was. And it was those pictures that captivated me. And it was in them that I found my stories beyond words. From age three to thirty, I read very few words. I immersed myself in pictures. I inhabited them. I explored behind every wall, every hedge, and over every beckoning windmill church-spired horizon. I played with Janet and John and Dick and Jane outside their world of words. Lanes were adventured. Streams raided for sticklebacks and pirated treasure. I read pictures with the skill of a textual critic, and hours could be lost over just one page. A few years ago I bought a second-hand copy of one of my most favourite childhood books, a ladybird book about a mountain adventure. I opened the cover and began to read the unfamiliar story that lay beside the oh-so-familiar pictures. A little while later I found myself once more lost in those pictures. The story remains unread, but the pictures await for more adventures. This is the Narabotarika, signing off for the night. And wherever you are, wishing you a very restful, peaceful and safe night. Good night. Temperature outside 10.3 degrees inside 22 degrees humidity 56 percent dew point 4 degrees wind direction northeast wind speed 5 miles per hour barometric pressure 1023.7 rising cloud cover 76% cloud ceiling 32,300 feet Precipitation Nil Moon phase 2.3% Waning crescent Day length 16 hours 19 minutes Sunset 2114 Skycasting 454